Yes, um, now when I say it's totally unspiritual, I guess walking through this process of creating a sermon um, is like I know that I speak words to you um, and you can hear those words, but it's only the spirit that comes alive uh, in you when I speak these words. So trying to understand that dynamic if you misunderstand me, you know, maybe you'll have to talk to me later, or you just ask the Holy Spirit to clarify it for you. Now, I've called my sermon today, uh, The Identity of Heaven and Hell. Now, I spoke a little bit, bit about this uh, topic a couple of weeks ago in Encounter, and I felt the Holy Spirit say, just to do it again, but to do it a bit better this time. So, um, I'm glad, two things, that the Holy Spirit's um, giving me the chance to do it again, but um, also it's helpful when you don't have to rewrite a whole new sermon as well. So I'm calling this part two. So the identity of heaven and hell, what do I mean by that? It's a very, it can conjure up all sorts of images, you know, but what, what am I sort of trying to explain? It's, it's just a metaphor, basically. Well, in the kingdom, there is a battle going on, and that battle... Uh, is about restoration. God is battling to restore us, the human race, unto himself. And the enemy is doing all that he can to stop that. He does not want us to be restored to the Father. So part of the battle I want to focus on today, what a large part of that is, is understanding our identity. Who am I? What's my identity? What does Jesus say that I am? So when I'm saying, using the words, the identity of heaven, I'm talking about who does the Father say that I am? What does Jesus call me? What does the Holy Spirit say? And what truth does Scripture tell me about my identity? And I believe that Satan wants to do all he can to stop us from knowing the truth of our identity. And to stop us from hearing that truth that is spoken from heaven or the, the truth that heaven is speaking over us from all of those places. Now, in the world, there are many voices uh, that we hear. There are voices that lift us up. There are voices that tell us we're wrong, how we should do this, how we should do that. Our peers, our friends, our family, our spouses, all speaking different things into our lives. And we're trying to take all of this input and then filter it, filter the good and filter out the bad, okay? And ultimately, we still have the choice of what voices we're going to listen to. But just like Eve in the Garden of Eden, sometimes we take in the wrong voices. In Eve's case, uh, she believed a lie that Satan told her, rather than what God said about her. And the enemy is still playing those same tricks today, trying to, de to deceive us, saying things like, well, did, did God really say that? Does God really mean that? So that's part of the battle, and the battle is over our identity. Do we understand our identity do we understand our identity that heaven has for us? And if we can understand and agree with what Jesus is saying about us, we can live 
from that place of truth. And we have a better chance at filtering out the voices of the enemy and tuning in to the voice of the Holy Spirit. So Abraham. We see um, Abraham had an identity that heaven gave him. God called him out of the east to become the father of all nations. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. Now, when God said this to Abraham, Abraham was actually still called Abram, okay? And there was nothing in Abraham's life to indicate that he was going to be the father of many nations, other than what God had said about him. God was relating to Abraham not based upon what Abraham had done or his present, because he'd done nothing up to that stage, but based upon what the purpose of Abraham was for the future. This is the identity that heaven had for Abraham. And this is how God related to Abraham. We see also in the story of Gideon that when the angel came to him, the angel came and said, you are a mighty warrior, Gideon. And Gideon's like, um, you sure you got the right person? Um, he was hiding in the wine press. He had never been a mighty warrior up to that point. Heaven was relating to Gideon based on his future. You see, we, we read that in Psalm 139 this morning. You are formed in the secret place. Okay, God has a purpose for you. Heaven knows who you are based upon your purpose. And its goal is to call you up into that purpose. God related to Gideon and Abraham based on what they would do in their future, not based upon their past or their present circumstances. Now, glad he did that because history records that Abraham was a liar and Gideon was afraid. But God never related to them based on their history. I think this is a very powerful statement. God related to them based on their destiny, not their history. God relates to us based on our destiny or our purpose, not our history. Take that home. You can have that for free. I, it, it's not mine. I must give credit. Now, if you need a good identity boost, ask the Holy Spirit. Okay? Ask those around you. Okay? What do you think that heaven is saying about who I am? We call that prophecy, but, you know, just asking people, they can see they can speak to you an encouraging word. What is your future? What is your destiny? Another good place to read uh, about identity and get a really good identity boost is Ephesians 1 and 2. Ephesians talks very much about who we are in Jesus and 
who Jesus has called us to be. Okay? It's a great picture of our identity in Christ. It says that we are blessed with every spiritual blessing. We are seated in, with Christ in heavenly places. And that we are God's inheritance. Amazing positive statements that say who we are, what Jesus has given us, and how he has relabeled us or upgraded us through his resurrection. Ephesians 5 and 6. Now that goes on. These are known as the spiritual warfare chapters. And I think it's no mistake that Ephesians 1 and 2 come before that. Before it talks about spiritual warfare, it talks about identity. Because Ephesians 1 and 2 talk so solidly about your identity in Christ. And it's a picture of like when you know who you are, when you understand your identity in Christ, you become more effective when it comes to spiritual warfare. But sometimes we forget who we are. And when we go into spiritual warfare, if we feel that we're unsure about our identity, we question our identity, we forget who we are, we can start to think, well, maybe I'm not good enough to do this. Maybe I've sinned too much. Maybe God's not happy with me. You see, because when you know your identity, you know that you have authority. You understand, your understanding of your identity leads to your authority. Now, that's a sermon in itself, but I'm not going there today. So I'll just leave you with that note. So go read Ephesians sometime and see that picture for yourself. It's only six chapters. Now, I'm not saying that this process is a magic formula. Not at all. What I'm saying is that you already have the identity of Christ in you. The cross and the resurrection, you have already been given an upgraded identity. And it's like maybe we just have to flick the switch on, turn the light on to recognise it. If you're listening and believing the wrong voices, your identity gets mixed up. You need to be able to realign yourself with the truth that Scripture says about what Jesus says you are. And when you realign yourself with that truth, it's easier to hear the voice of heaven. Yes, that's the voice of heaven because it agrees with that truth. Or hang on, I'm not so sure about that voice. It doesn't line up with the truth of what Jesus says I am. Now, just a side note about the Holy Spirit and hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6 says that anyone who is joined to the Holy Spirit is one with him. So there is this merging between your spirit and the Holy Spirit that has taken place. Now, I want to give you a really basic tool to help you to test the voices of the Holy Spirit. So if you hear a thought, say, uh, cook food for your next door neighbour, you know. And it's like, well, was that thought you had, was it optimistic? Was that thought bringing hope? Is that thought encouraging and so forth, you know? 
Is that a good attribute of the Holy Spirit? Well, then, yes, it's probably from the Holy Spirit. And did you know that because you're merged with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit sounds like your thoughts? It's not some booming external voice. It sounds like your thoughts. But Scripture also says that your thoughts are not my thoughts. So the voice of the Holy Spirit sounds like you, except the thoughts are optimistic, powerful, and full of hope. So when you think, oh, should I cook a meal and give it to that neighbour, then it's the Holy Spirit in you. Lord, I think I should go on a missions trip to Africa. Surely that wasn't the Holy Spirit. Well, actually, most likely it is. Now, you have a choice about aligning yourself with that thought. Okay. But I just wanted to give you a small picture of, um, and it's only a small picture of the Holy Spirit in, your, in you. So Gideon, he also had a choice to make. When the angel came to him, do I align myself with mighty warrior or do I just let it slide? He was not a mighty warrior when the angel spoke to him. But he stepped into agreement with that, what the angel said, and then he was able to step into his destiny. When you listen to the identity of heaven and step into it, you align yourself into your God-given purpose. Now, hell also has an identity for you. And simply put, it's to keep you confused about your identity. Satan's goal is to keep you paralysed and ineffective. So the voice of heaven is always calling you upward into your identity. The identity of hell wants to keep you trapped and confused. Now, as Christians, I think one of the ways we get trapped is with our understanding of sin. Now, I'm not talking about your sin. I'm talking about how we understand sin and how we think how we think God sees our sin. The identity that hell has for you is one of condemnation when we do sin. We can enter into that place where we feel like God is separate from us, you know, and we have to confess, we have to deal with our sin because we've fallen outside of the will of God. Or we feel like we have to climb into the pit of despair and we can't live this life of the new creation until we've dealt with all this shame and guilt. Or maybe we've heard that we can't come close to God until you deal with your sin. Because God can be nowhere near sin. God is angry at me. God is judging me while I'm still in sin. But over here we have this notion, we have this heaven's identity that... Um, sorry... You are a new creation, and whom the sun sets free will struggle in their sin for the rest of their life. No, that's not what it says. Will be free indeed. The thief comes to rob, kill, and destroy in John 10.10. But I have come to give you life, and life abundant. So on one side, Jesus has declared that you are free 
to have life abundant. But on this side, we get stuck in this picture of managing our sin. And to me, there's a really big disconnect between these two pictures. Now, confession of sin, putting off the sin nature, is what God wants us to do. But this picture, where we have to die to sin again and again, keeps us stuck in this place of sin management. And these voices that say, until we deal with our sin, we can't come near to God, until we deal with our failures, do not align with the truth of what God says we are. The enemy wants to relate to you based on your history compared to God who wants to relate to us based upon our purpose our and identity, your destiny. And there is a big disconnect between these two pictures and it makes a big difference when we unpack these. So let me tell you a story. So there is this tree and it's a pear tree and it's also a talking tree. Okay, so this tree produces poison fruit. Now the tree says to the farmer, Farmer farmer Larry, I seem to have this problem. All I seem to produce is poison fruit. So when I produce poison fruit, can you help me? Can you just come and pluck off the fruit and throw it away? Get the metaphor? The poison fruit is the fear, anxiety, lust, greed, whatever bad fruit in your life you want to name. And he's asking the farmer to come and help manage his sin. So he plucks off the fruit and it gets thrown away. Now a few weeks later, the tree has to call Farmer Larry, it's happened again. This is the picture of sin management. Okay, What's happened in the case of the tree is a pear tree and it was planted in an apple orchard. Now it was told that it was no good by all the other apple trees. Okay, You're a pear tree. You've got to be an apple tree. So the pear tree believed a lie that it was no good because it wasn't an apple tree. And because it felt the need... It, to, to be an apple tree, it believed that lie and started to try and change the shape of the pears and ended up just producing ultimately poison fruit. So by picking off the fruit and throwing it away, there was no way that the tree was ever going to change its nature. What had happened is that the tree had believed the lie and got stuck in the place trying to live up to that lie. It had listened to the lie that it was no good, believed the lie, and consequently produced bad fruit. One of the major lies that we think, I think that we think, maybe you don't think this, is that we need to get cleaned up before we come to Jesus. We think that God won't forgive your sin until you're sorry enough. Or God is still angry at you for sinning or disappointed or unhappy with you. And that's the lie. That's the subtle lie. 
Let me show you this. The prodigal son. I'm not going to read the story, but here we have the son leaves his father's house, goes out into the wilderness and returns. What did the father do? Did he say, son, I'm sorry you left me. Um, You've really offended me by doing what you've done. I'm sorry that you chose to sin. Can you please go live in the barn with my servants uh, until you're sorry for your sin? And maybe then, maybe then we'll you can come back live in the house. Now that is actually what the prodigal son expected to hear. If I can just go and live as one of his servants, is what the prodigal said. But the father didn't do that. He didn't say that. He embraced the son before he confessed his sin. So he got up and went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, His father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran, threw his arms around his neck, kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and earth. So the father had compassion on him and welcomed his son back in and restored him before he confessed his sin. The woman caught in adultery. Jesus leans down to her and says, Hey, Um, these guys want to stone you and the law says that they can do it. So if you confess your sin, well, maybe I'll see what I can do. No, no, he doesn't say that, okay? He says, I do not condemn you. And then he says, go and sin no more. Jesus was called the friend of sinners. Zacchaeus was known by everyone in the town you know, and Jesus comes into the midst of the crowd, you know, and he calls out to Zacchaeus, I'm coming to stay at your house. The crowd were basically shocked and offended, okay, that amongst the entire crowd that had gathered, Zacchaeus was the one. Now, why do you think that? Well, I think it's because everyone knew who Zacchaeus was in the town, and he was probably the worst sinner being a tax collector. And Jesus invited him into relationship before he comes down out of the tree and starts confessing his sin. You see, we have thought that we have had to be in this place to get right with God, to confess our sin before he will restore us. We've gotten the whole thing backwards. The father restored the prodigal before his confession of sin. The woman caught in adultery, the same picture. Restoration then leads to confession of sin. Jesus spoke the truth over them, and the truth restored them. He spoke the identity of heaven over them, which called them into a place of restoration. And Jesus is always speaking that over you and over me. He is always calling you up into your identity. He wants you to succeed and rise and be that mighty warrior or whatever your purpose is. You see, God has made it easy for us to be restored to him. Somehow we've got it backwards. Sin does not separate us from God. Yes, we then have to deal with it, but it never stops people from coming to God. From God's side, it's been made easy, even for the whole world. He has forgiven the sin 
of the whole world and made it easy. 1 Peter 3 says... Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. 1 John 2, 2. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. So John said that Jesus has forgiven our sin. So he's speaking to the church or the ecclesia at this point. But then he expands it and says Jesus has forgiven the sins of the entire world. Surely not. Surely that heathen down the street hasn't had their sin forgiven. Well, yes, they have. From God's side, he has done everything possible to make it easy for, that, for the world to come to him. Now, it doesn't always mean that they will accept that invitation. They still have the choice to say yes to Jesus. Okay? But God will make it e has made it easy by forgiving the sin of the whole world. So what's the way forward? How do we get out of this picture of sin management? How do we align ourselves with the truth? Romans 6. For we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that sin's dominion over the body may be abolished so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. Since a person who has died is freed from sin's claim. Excuse me. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. Because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. For in light of the fact that he died, he died to sin once for all. But in light of the fact that he lives, he lives to God. So, you too consider yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. In Romans 8. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live by the Spirit, you put to death the misdeeds of the body. So what's going on here? Paul is saying that you were once a sinner and your old self used to live in the sinner's camp. Okay, this metaphor of a sinner's camp. And when you said yes to Jesus... You entered into the death and resurrection of Jesus. And that person, the old self, died at the cross. Your old self is now a corpse. Okay? Dead. Done. And with Christ, you died and rose with him. And you've crossed over from that sinner camp to the righteous camp. Now, he goes on to say that you are no longer a sinner. Full stop. You are no longer in the sinner camp. Your identity was a sinner, but now your identity is over here in the righteous camp and you have all the entitlements of heaven. Your identity is living from this place of I have been made righteous in Christ. I am seated in heavenly places. I am part of God's inheritance. You live in the righteous camp and you receive all the identity that comes with this. 
This is your new identity. Now, Romans 8 then goes and says, you still need, once you've crossed over, to deal with the deeds of the flesh. But you do this by remembering who you are and not listening to the lies. So take a hypothetical scenario. It starts with a lie. Satan reminds you of your history, of your past. Hey, Neil, um, you don't deserve to live in that place. Don't you remember the good times we used to have? Did God really say that you are righteous? And if you believe those lies, whatever they are, and you take off your heavenly robes, and you try to forget who you are, you play around in the sandpit of the deeds of the flesh, and Jesus comes along and says, hey, who told you you were a sinner? Who told you that? Don't you remember? I have an identity for you. And he reminds us who we are and restores us into this place. Sorry, Jesus, I forgot. He restores before confession. He never comes to condemn. And when we start to get a handle on living with this identity of heaven, the deeds of the flesh are easier to deal with. When Jesus calls you up into your identity, you remember the truth and you live from that place. And this is how we get empowered to deal with the lies. The enemy's goal is to make you forget who you are. When Eve was deceived by the serpent, the serpent made her believe a lie. Eat the fruit, become like God. What was the deception? The deception was that the enemy made her think that she was not already like God. And that was the lie. She was already made in the image of God. She was already like God. The enemy is playing the same trick. Did, did God really say that? And the best way of moving forward is remembering that the identity that heaven has spoken over you. Remember who you are. Now, just like the tree, maybe there are some lies that you have believed that you have to deal with. But Jesus is patient. Jesus is loving. And Jesus will continually call me upwards and reminds us of our identity and does not condemn you. Now, just to finish, I just want to read a story. Uh, it's a hypothetical story. Or scenario, I guess. But it's based around um, slavery in the United States. So slavery in the United States, so this is from a book, uh, Eyes of Honour, by Dr. Jonathan Welton. We're using this book in the men's group at the moment. Slavery in the United States was abolished by the 13th Amendment, December 18, 1865. How many slaves were there the next day on December 19th? In reality, none, but many still lived like slaves. Many did because they never learned the truth. 
Others knew and even believed that they were free, but they choose to live as they had been taught. Several plantation owners were devastated by this proclamation of emancipation. We're ruined. Slavery has been abolished. We've lost our battle to keep our slaves. But the chief spokesman slyly responded, not necessarily. As long as these people think they're still slaves, the proclamation of emancipation will have no practical effect. We don't have a legal right over them anymore, but many of them don't know it. Keep your slaves from learning the truth and your control over them will not even be challenged. But what if the news spreads? Don't panic, we've got another barrel in our gun. We may not be able to keep them from hearing the news, but we can still keep them from understanding it. They don't call me the father of lies for nothing. We still have the potential to deceive the whole world. Just tell them they misunderstood the 13th Amendment. Tell them that they are going to be free, not that they are free already. The truth they heard is just positional truth, not actual truth. Someday they may receive the benefits, but, but not now. But they'll expect me to say that. They won't believe me. Well, then pick out a few persuasive ones who are convinced and that they are still slaves and let them do the talking for you. Remember, most of these free people were born as slaves and lived like slaves. All we have to do is deceive them so that they still think like slaves. As long as they continue to do what slaves do, it will not be hard to convince them that they must still be slaves. They will maintain their slave identity because of the things they do. The moment they try to profess that they are no longer slaves, just whisper in the air, how can you even think that you're no longer a slave? You're still doing the things that slaves do. After all, we have the capacity to, to accuse the brethren day and night. Years later, many have still not heard the wonderful news that they have been freed. So naturally, they continue to live the way they have always lived. Some have heard the good news, but evaluated it by what they are presently doing and feeling. They reason, I'm still living in bondage, doing the same things I've always done. My experience tells me I must not be free. I'm feeling the same way I was before the proclamation, so it must be true. After all, your feelings always tell you the truth. So they continue to live according to how they feel, not wanting to be hypocrites. Now one former slave hears the good news and receives it with great joy. He checks out the validity of the proclamation and finds out that the highest, at the highest of all authorities it had originated. Not only that, but it personally cost the authority a tremendous price, which he willingly paid paid so that he could be free. His life is transformed. He correctly reasons that it would be hypocritical to believe his feelings and not believe the truth. Determined to live by what he knows to be true, he experience, his experiences begin to change rather dramatically. He realises that his old master has no authority over him and does not need to be obeyed. He gladly serves the one who set him free. Would you stand with me?